Good morning. Well, it's good to be back. I missed you guys. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Dear Father in Heaven, we want to give you thanks for watching over us in the last, uh, last week and keeping us safe and providing this, uh, this class for us to come and study your word. We ask that your spirit and your angels will join us this morning, that our hearts will be lifted in praise to you and our minds will be able to see you more clearly. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly, The Fruits of the Spirit. And the lesson title this week is The Fruit of the Spirit is Meekness. And if somebody would read for us the memory verse for this week. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And when you hear that memory verse, which is something we've heard many, many times, what thoughts come to mind? First thing, what is meekness? Let's ask the question. What is meekness? Yeah, yeah, that's the next question. She, she says the opposite of pride. Do you like that definition? Yeah, that that humility. Humility. Mm-hmm. Other other thoughts. Any other thoughts for the definition of meekness? She said it was seen in Moses's life. I like I like what. Um, Gentleness and patience under wrong. Yeah, and the dictionary says humble, patient, docile, calm, especially in the face of provocation. There's really strength in meekness. Yeah, strength in meekness, she says. There's really strength in meekness. Um, and I, I kind of just wrote in how about meekness is there's no desire to promote yourself? Mm-hmm. Would that be meekness? No desire to promote yourself. Yes. Something we're not born with. Something we're not born with. Yes, he says. So, then the question over here is, why will the meek inherit the earth? Because it's given to them. Because it's given to them. I guess the question is, why the meek? Well, why will that new heaven and new earth be a safe place to live for all eternity? Because they have no self-interest. They will be perfect caretakers. You don't want to give some a house, you don't want to lend your house to somebody who is likely to paint the walls, who's likely to redecorate everything, who's changing. Okay, so they're not interested in promoting themselves, or they're, they're, up, they're interested in doing what, what's right for others? So that's why it's a safe place? Yes. Because isn't that what like, having the earth is going to be like? It's supposed to be where all others centered ourselves Exactly. That's it. That's the meek, right? And isn't that going to be a safe place when you know everyone everywhere loves you more than themselves? And you love everyone more than yourself. Now, won't that be a great place? No need to protect self. No need to watch out for self. No need to, to promote yourself. No need to, to, to take advantage of others to get self ahead. None of that stuff we deal with here. So we don't need angels with flaming swords on every corner to keep us in line. Everyone will be, as it says in the fruits of the fruits of the spirit, the last fruit, self-control and kratia. Krat, like democrat or autocrat, means to exercise authority over and means within. We will all have the ability to exercise authority over ourselves in the new heaven and new earth. We'll be self-governed. We'll be a safe place. So how do weakness and meekness look different? Let's read the third paragraph there. Third paragraph in the question starts, although weakness. Although weakness and meekness may look similar, 
They are not the same. <coughs> Weakness is due to negative circumstances such as lack of strength or lack of courage. Hardly the words to describe Jesus who said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. Meekness, rather, is the result of a person's conscious choice to trust God and lean on Him, as opposed to pushing for one's own ways. Thus, meekness arises out of strength. So what do you think the difference between weakness and meekness? How would that look in real life? How does it function differently? Is it a fair question to ask? Weakness, a person is maybe not willing to even try to do anything. Whereas with meekness, you do it with confidence. She says with weakness, a person may not be willing to try even to do anything. Whereas with meekness, you try with confidence. How about a woman who's in a relationship with a man who is domineering, controlling, to the point of abuse, uh, uh, exerting authority that's un- inappropriate, physically knocking her around, bloody lips, black eyes. And when uh, she's in the ER and the doctor's talking to her, she says, oh, it, it wasn't his fault. If I would have behaved in such a he wouldn't have had to hit me. That's meekness. meekness or weakness? Weakness. Well, what would meekness look like for that woman? How would a meek woman handle that? I love him, but he did this to me. Okay, so in the context of the relationship with her husband, she's married to a man who's domineering and controlling. And, and you can draw the spectrum of intensity. It can go everything from, from verbal abuse and exerting of control through authority to physical domination and, and physical abuse. And there's, there's a, lots of gradation in there, but the attitude is the same, yeah? Okay? So if, if a woman in this relationship, if she's meek, how does she behave? She's got a man that's treating her this way. While you're patient and you have no ill will, you still make the move to make that not happen to stop that from she says, while you have no ill will, while you're patient, you still take actions to put a stop to it. Because it's in his best interest. Oh, my next question was, why do you, do you move to put a stop to it? Does the meek person practice God-like principles in their life? Mm-hmm. Yes? Yeah. And, the, and, the, and the core to God's character is? Helping other people. Helping other people, which is love, right? Mm-hmm. Other so would a meek person have God-like love in their heart? A truly meek person, yes? I'm, not, I'm only hearing a couple yeses. Yes, yes? God like love in the heart of the meek person? And what is God like love? Where's the focus of somebody who has love in their heart? Where's the focus? On protecting themselves or, or, or protecting others? So, a woman who's being battered by her husband, if she's meek and has God like love in her heart, who is she concerned for? Okay, so what does she do and why? She'll talk to him. Okay, so he smacks her when he comes in. Don't talk to me. Bam! Backhand. What does she do? She does whatever he needs to do to stop him. But yet to... Um, Why? Because by allowing it to happen, she ends up becoming like a codependent. Well, that's true. If allowing it to happen. See, she does have a responsibility to God to, to protect her own spirit temple and not allow her individuality to be destroyed because she is God's child, no question about it. But if she's loving him, what happens to him if he continues to treat her this way? Sears his conscience. Sears his conscience, warped his reason, damages his soul. Isn't that true? So when we look at Christ, when Christ was being beaten and spit upon and crucified, what was his attitude? Where was his focus? Who was he concerned with? 
Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He wasn't. Now, if anybody had the right to say it's not fair, Christ certainly had the right to say it's not fair. All I've ever done is heal the sick and, and feed the hungry and, and, and preach the good news and, and look how they're treating me. It's just not fair. I don't deserve this. I mean, he had the right to say that if anybody did. Was he focused on himself and, and how it wasn't fair, what was happening to him? Now, what was happening to those other people? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What did they not know that they were doing? Who did they think they were killing? They were destroying their own characters. They thought they were killing a troublemaker, but they were in reality separating themselves from the only source of life in the universe. They were killing themselves. And they had no clue, did they? No. That's exactly right. So what happens to the character, mind, conscious of a man who beats his wife? If he persists living like this... Will he be saved even if he's an elder of the church and claims Christ as his Savior? No. Can elders in the church who claim Christ as their Savior do this kind of behavior? Yes. Yes, they can. Yes, they have. And they have. Yes. Including pastors, he said. It doesn't have to be an elder or deacon, pastor. Yes. And they won't be saved because those who persist in sin damage and destroy their own characters. Does God ever get so tired of them that he gets frustrated? His patience wears out. That he comes to the point, he says, look, I've given you seven times 70 chances, and you've blown them all. That's my limit. I can't take any more. Does that ever get to that point? Does God ever get to the point that he has to, um, from his heart, inflict a penalty upon wicked? Listen to this, and, and tell me whether you agree or disagree with these comments out of a book called... Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. And let's, let's, let's kind of analyze what's being described here. The prevalence of a sinful desire shows the delusion of the soul. Every indulgence of that desire strengthens the soul's aversion to God. In following the path of Satan's choosing, we are encompassed by the shadows of evil, and every step leads into deeper darkness and increases the blindness of the heart. What's being described so far? Downward spiral. So if we indulge in adultery, beating our wives, lying, gossiping at church, attacking other people, we indulge in, in, in violations of love where we actually are, are living self-centered lives. What happens within us when we do this, according to this first paragraph? Does something change in us? Do we become more in tune with God or does the soul become more averse to God? Do you think that's true, or do you think that's just hyperbole? It's true. Because the conscience becomes seared. It says, we increase the blindness of the heart. Listen to these next words. The same law obtains in the spiritual as in the natural world. Think that through, the same law. Because oftentimes in church, people talk a lot about God's law. A lot of times in church, people talk about God's law as a set of rules. If you break the law, then there's a record of the broken deeds done in the books, and then that, that, that list of deeds then comes back that you have to answer to for the rules broken. But notice what she says here. The same law obtains in the spiritual as in the natural world. Next words. He who abides in darkness will at last lose the power of vision. He is shut in by deeper than midnight blackness, and to him the brightest brightest noontide can bring no light. He walks in darkness and knows not whether he goes, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John 2.11 
through persistently cherishing evil, willfully disregarding the pleadings of divine love, the sinner loses the love for good, the desire for God, the very capacity to receive the light of heaven. The invitation of mercy is still full of love. The light is shining as brightly as when it first dawned on his soul. But the voice falls on deaf ears and the light on blinded eyes. Not a blessing, page 92. What's being described here? What's the process being described? God's love finally wears out. God finally turns the lights off from heaven and won't shine any more truth down on the soul. Pardon? If you don't use it, you lose it, she said. Yes. When God gave his son, he gave all he had to offer. And if we reject that and refuse that, he has nothing more to give us. What's being described, though, here? The relationship between God and sinner. The sinner is acting in ways that are rejecting the light, rejecting the truth. In that action, who is being changed by that process? Notice very carefully, God does not get changed by our sin. One of the theories in Christianity is that when we sin, we offend God. His holiness and His righteousness gets, gets uh, offended and irate and, and, and righteous wrath begins to build in His heart. And in order to be just, He has to, to take that wrath out and, 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 and proper punishments have to be laid down. This is some of the theories taught. What's being described here in this description? Do you think this description here is accurate? Yes. If you persist in sin. Notice again, the same law obtains in the spiritual as in the natural world. You may or may not know this. They take animals, and they've done studies on this. You might think these are cruel. But they'll take kittens, uh, uh, dog pups, and they will, right at birth, put a blindfold over the eye. They will not damage the, the eyeball at all. The eyeball will not be damaged. They just blind the eye with a blindfold until the uh, animal's full grown. And then they take the blindfold off. What do you think? Can the animal see? There's no damage to the eye. The eye has not been damaged. What happened? The brain has not been receiving any light, and so the brain neural circuits in the occipital cortex that correspond with vision were not developed. They were, they were actually deleted. No possibility ever for that animal to see again. The same law which applies in the natural world, applies in the spiritual world. If we have light shining on us, but we close our eyes to the light, what will eventually happen to our ability to see the light? We become spiritually blind. Notice that the love is not diminished from heaven. The light shining on the soul has not been reduced. The capacity of the sinner to see the light has been lost. This is why those who are lost in the end are lost. Not because God ever comes to the point he wants them lost. Not because God ever becomes angry at the sinner. Not because God ever wants to inflict harm upon them. But because they are beyond reach. There's nothing that could be done for them. They've passed over. They've destroyed the very faculties that respond to truth. Yes, way in the back. Yeah, David Sherwood shared with the young people one time in Sabbath school. And I'll never forget it. He said that, he told the young people, he said, I don't have to pray. I don't have to read my Bible. You know, I don't have to have a relationship with Jesus. He said, but I need to. He says, because everybody has a hitler in the basement, and I don't want to find out what I've become without Jesus. Excellent. Yes, we don't have to do that. But if we do, it's like, I don't have to brush my teeth. I don't have to floss. I don't have to, do I? What happens if I don't? Lose my teeth. What happens if we don't do these things? 
Our, our minds go blind. Our characters become seared. We become warped. This is what happens. Let's keep reading on. Same, same book, Thoughts Amount of Blessing, page 92, moving on to page 93. No soul is ever finally deserted of God, given up to his own ways, so long as there is any hope of his salvation. Notice the, the action of God here. The, 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 the action that God is using his power to, to make happen. God, no soul is ever finally tortured by God. Uh, no, that's not what it says. No soul is ever finally deserted of God, given up to his own ways, as long as there is any hope for his salvation. Man turns from God, not God, from man. Our Heavenly Father follows us with appeals and warnings and assurances of compassion until further opportunities and privileges would be wholly in vain. Why would they be in vain? Because we're spiritually blind. We can no longer respond to any love. No love has impact on us. No truth has any resonance. We can't even see or comprehend the truth anymore because we've persisted in rebellious living so long we've destroyed the very faculties. It's like we're blind. We can't see. Keep going. The responsibility rests with the sinner. By resisting the Spirit of God today, he prepares the way for a second resistance of light when it comes with mightier power. Thus he passes from one stage of resistance to another until at last the light will fail to impress and he will cease to respond in any measure to the Spirit of God. Then even the light that is in him has become darkness. The very truth we know has become so perverted as to increase the blindness of the soul. Thoughts about this process. Isn't this what happened to Satan when he finally came to God? This is exactly what happened to Satan. This is why Satan could not be taken back to heaven. It was never a point where God said, I am so mad, I am so angry, I am so wrathful, you have crossed me for the last time, my patience is worn out with you, that I won't take you back. God's heart never changed. God's love for Lucifer is the same today as the day God made Lucifer. God's desire to save Lucifer is the same. The problem is, Lucifer, Satan, cannot be saved. He so destroyed his own character that no amount of light or truth has any impact upon him. This is why he can't be saved. What about this idea that the truth that you knew, the very truth, the very light that you had at one point, has now increased the level of your darkness? How does that work? Any thoughts on that? Let's look at examples from Christ's day. Pharisees in Christ's day. Did they have light or truth about which day of the week was the Sabbath? Did they accept the light and truth that Jesus brought about the character of God? No. So when they rejected that truth and hardened their hearts against Christ and his revelation of God's character of love, how did they use the Sabbath? Was the Sabbath a day of blessing? As a whip. And in fact, what did they allege Christ to be doing when he was healing on the Sabbath? So the light about the Sabbath, rather than becoming a day for restoration and healing, and Christ even said to them, what does our law allow us to do on the Sabbath? To save or to kill, to do good or to do evil, when the man was there with the withered arm. And they wouldn't answer him. Why wouldn't they answer him? And so Christ said, stretch out your arm. And what did they do? It says in the scripture, they immediately went out and plotted to kill him. The light, because they saw him now as a Sabbath breaker. 
the light of the Sabbath, having rejected greater light of God's character, now became a tool of darkness where they were now opposed to to God's character of love and what Christ was doing. So even the truths we know, if we accept greater light, becomes darkness in us. It's powerful stuff. And as we study our doctrines, as we move forward in our lessons, what do you think the central truth, the foundational building block, the cornerstone upon which all other doctrines must harmonize or center upon? What what might that be? Bingo. Everything has to come back to a support, affirm, expose, reveal the truth that God is love. If anybody heard or read the books, the Conflict of the Ages series, the very first words in the first book in Patriarchs and Prophets is, God is love. The very last words, five large books later, at the end of the Great Controversy, is... God is love. The whole series is designed to help us see, in the context of this controversy between Christ and Satan, the true nature of God. God is love. This is a center teaching that everything must be harmonizing with. Sunday's lesson. Top section there in the dark, it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. What does it mean to take Christ's yoke? Doesn't in that time a, a, a rabbi's teachings were called his yoke? She said a rabbi's teachings in his time were called his yoke. Somebody had a comment back here? It's bonded to him. Bonded to him or, or connected to him. You know, two oxen yoked together, they, neither, neither one goes a separate way. They're always journeying together. And when you're yoked up with, with Christ, are you pulling the weight of, of life's problems alone? He takes the bigger burden. He takes the bigger burden, she says. So take my yoke upon you means to join ourselves to him. Would that mean that we join ourselves to him in heart and mind and motive? Or just in obedience to the rules? Heart, mind, and motive. Yeah, absolutely. And what was Christ's mission? He said in John 17, Father, I have finished the work you have given me to do. I have made you known to men. If we yoke up with Christ, will we be sharing in his mission to make known the truth about God? Yeah, of course. Somebody read the first paragraph for us in that in one Sunday's lesson. It says meekness is. Meekness is the absolute ceasing to fight for our agenda and believing that God will fight on our behalf for his. Meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The person is not occupied with self. An attitude that's key to the promise of finding rest for your souls. After all, aren't our turmoil and agitation so often due to seeking only for ourselves and what we want? In the truest sense, then, a meek person is the one who has learned to die to self. And that takes faith, courage, and perseverance, not necessarily trace the world associated with meekness. Thoughts? Do you like it? I think it's pretty well stated. I continue to have a question. What is God in control of? Any thoughts from the class? What is God in control of? Is God in control of himself? Yes. Any, 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 any dispute about that? Is God in control of inanimate nature? The universe, the, the earth circling around the sun, and the, and the rotation of the earth on its axis, and the moon's cycles, and, and these types of things. Is, is he in control of that, or is he ordained in nature, uh, obeys him? 
I think I think all of nature continues to be sustained by His power. Oh, I agree. But and He oversees that. Okay. Does that mean He's in control? Ultimately, yes. Does He allow certain um, certain parameters or windows of of variation within His framework? Yeah. He's got certain parameters. He allows things to work themselves out under His guidance. How about does God control individual sentient beings' choices? Why would he not control your choices? Because you have to have free will. Because why? What would happen if we were robots and he was he just programmed us all? No opportunity for love. Yes, love would not exist if we were just robots. We would just be programmed machines. And machines don't love. I mean, you may love your car in a certain way, but I can tell you, your car doesn't love you. Okay? And, uh, and, and we wouldn't be able to love God if we were just machines. So he leaves us free. So he doesn't control our, our, our choices. So I don't know if that answers. To me, that's, that's where the real line is, is in, is, is in free will of sentient beings. Inanimate nature, I think Adam, prior to the fall, had the back capacity to have control over inanimate nature, that he could do anything he wanted with nature, and it was not a violation of God's law. That term, you know, God is in control, is thrown around often in, in Christian uh, literature and pulpits and things like that. And uh, I think it's wise to sit and ponder what, what exactly that means. What is he in control of? I think the difficulty comes when you have somebody getting up and saying, it's, a, it's amazing, God has been in control of my life. We just sat back and prayed and we sold our business in two days and sold our house in 12 hours and moved here and gotten to school even though we heard it was closed. God has managed our lives. And then three weeks later, a hurricane comes and one of their children's killed. There's the huge discrepancy because that, God is in control of our lives. What a devastation. Yeah, yeah I, I think that uh, oftentimes God gets credited for things that he actually wasn't really responsible for. Does he micromanage yeah. like that? Yeah. I just wanted to talk about control and, and we have free will and all that. We're all probably similar in the same uh, plateau of nothing terribly, I mean, we've all had destructive things, but I come across a situation this week where there was absolute violent abuse of a child that grew up and the kid is now 26 and ruined. And I think when we pray for the safety of our children or this or that, I have a hard time putting that together. Um, you pray for the safety of your child, and this happens anyway. You say, well, the perpetrator had made choices. I, I grant you that. But I'm not quite sure where that all fits in to the safety of the innocent child. Yeah, that's a good discussion that we're, we could have at a different time. Because that discussion could go on. And I think we talk about why do bad things happen to innocent people, supposedly, or good people. Um, you know, I think it's in chapter 13 of my book. We, talk, we explore those multiple reasons why bad things happen to good people. And ultimately, it happens because we live in a universe of true love. The ultimate answer is, if God were to take away the freedom for people to abuse their freedom, then there is no capacity for love. You pray for safety on your on your trip for your family coming to visit you, and a drunk driver runs through a red light and kills your family. 
Where was God in that? Well, what was God supposed to do? Was he to suspend the laws of physics so when the cars hit, they bounce like rubber? Was he to suspend, was he to take away the freedom of the man to drive? Was he to take away the freedom of the man to get alcohol and get drunk? Was he to take away the freedom of the parents to have sex so the man was never born? I mean, where do you draw the line of God manipulating things along this line? I think the ultimate answer is why this stuff happens is because love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom and there is an enemy who wants to destroy God's methods. And then that's the ultimate answer. But there are, there are other reasons of a more subtle nature that we could go through in certain circumstances. But the ultimate reason, the bottom line reason, is love is real and freedom is real. God is not in control of the behavior of that person. I know, but, but the, the thing is that person was killed, that wasn't God's control. Right. Oh, I got you. I got you. That person's not... And that's the other thing you have to put it in the context of the great controversy. Everybody's coming up out of the grave. They're coming up in one of two resurrections. And so what happens to us here, remember Christ said in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear the one who can harm the body, but the one who can destroy body and soul. It's not about whether you get killed in a car wreck. It's about what's the condition of your character. That's the real issue. Um, so we're talking about meekness. Was Paul being meek when he opposed Peter publicly? Yes. And to his face? Going up in front of the pulpit, opposing the preacher in front of the whole church. You're wrong. Is that meekness? Yes, he was being meek. Why? Because Paul was not promoting himself. Peter was confusing the, the church. Peter was confusing the new converts. He was putting a layer of legalism on that would, have, that would have obstructed their salvation. And so Paul spoke to Peter in a public way because Peter was publicly confusing people. And it was a meek thing to do because Paul was not concerned about himself. He was concerned about protecting Christ's reputation and saving these people. For, if you want to put a physical analogy to it, if um, the preacher uh, in church was leading people to drink the cyanide Kool-Aid, Jonestown. And somebody opposed him publicly. Would that be an act of meekness? Sure it would. Because it's not about self. It's about protecting others. And so meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is lack of self-interest. Willing to promote the truth and promote love to protect others. That's what meekness is. So you see this at times with Moses. Moses was not a weak person. Moses would stand up, but he was not a self-promoting person. This is, this is the, the aspect about it. It, it talked about dying to self. How do we die to self? How do we die to self? Put your focus on it. Put your focus, so straightforward, so simple, it's absolutely, see what you think about this out of a book called Maranatha, page 109. Paul could say, I die daily. It is the daily dying to self in the little transactions of life that make us overcomers. We should forget self in the desire to do good to others. With many, there is a decided lack of love for others. Instead of faithfully performing their duty, they seek rather their own pleasure. God positively enjoins upon all his followers a duty to bless others with their influence and means, and to seek that wisdom of him which will enable them to do all in their power to elevate the thoughts and affections of those who come within their influence. And doing for others a sweet satisfaction will, will be experienced, an inward peace which will be a sufficient reward. When actuated by a high and noble desire to do good for others, they will find true happiness and a faithful discharge of their duties. This will bring more than an earthly reward, for every faithful, unselfish performance of duty is noticed by angels and shines in the life record. 
In heaven, none will think of self nor seek their own pleasure, but all from pure, genuine love will seek happiness, will seek the happiness of the heavenly beings around them. Does that give us a clue why heaven will be such a safe place? Everybody's seeking your good. Everybody's thinking, boy, what can I do to make your life better today? What a place that will be. I mean, I'd love to be in that place. Are we supposed to start experiencing that here and now? Are we supposed in our church family to begin loving others more than self? Now, are we supposed to be helping each other now? Yes. Yeah, we are. What do you think this means? It says, Every faithful, unselfish performance of duty is noticed by angels and shines in the life record. What do you think that means? Really fascinating. Some people have a very, very interesting ideas of the record books in heaven. What do you think the record books in heaven are all about? God's trustworthy. Some people, you know, think that maybe it's a list of deeds done and deeds not done. You know, uh, the same person who wrote this in Maranatha wrote a little bit later the following. See if this gives a clue about the heavenly records. Angels of God, remember it says in this first one that the angels of God are noticing or, or noticed by angels of God. This says angels of God are taking a daguerreotype. Anybody know what a daguerreotype is? A picture. It's a 19th century photograph. Okay? So it's a photograph. Angels of God are taking a photograph of the character just as accurately as the artist takes the likeness of the human features. And it is from this that we are judged. What are we judged from? Our own characters. So, when you put the two together, every act of kindness that we do to is noticed and shines forth from the life's record. What is it saying? It's shining forth from where? From your character. You see, when we treat others with love, it changes us. It transforms us. We are dying to self. Selfishness is being extinguished. Love of Christ is being written in. I will write my law on their hearts and minds, the new covenant experience. We are being changed to be more like Christ. And the life record, because where is the life record actually kept? Mind of God. It's your character. There's a lot of people get confused about this too. They say, uh, are we judged out of the books of heaven? The books of heaven are an accurate photograph of your character. So where is the real sin problem or the real righteousness restoration happening? In the books of heaven or in the heart of the person? Where is the real sin problem? In the books of heaven or in the heart of the person? Where is the real righteousness restoration? In the books of heaven or in the heart of the person? So think about a movie projector. Movie projector, the film is the real thing. The actual film, the physical picture is the film, right? But it projects it onto the wall. We see the, see the image on the wall. The image on the wall is only that, a, a reflection of the real thing, which is the, which is the film. The records in heaven are an accurate reflection or recording of what's the reality of our condition. Does this make sense to everyone? And so when it comes to the heavenly judgment, we are all judged by what? This is what Christ meant in Matthew. He says, by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. 
Meaning by your very condition. You've either opened your heart and allowed the Spirit to come in. And the Spirit will come in when you trust me. And He pours His love into your heart. We become partakers of the divine nature. I write my law in your hearts and minds. You get reborn, renewed, recreated. We have circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. You're transformed. You're regenerated to be like Christ. We are again in unity at one meant atonement. We're one with Christ. You either are or you're not. That's it. We haven't even got out of Sunday's lesson yet. Can you believe that? <laughs> Last paragraph, Sunday's lesson. It says, Ephesians 4.2 is another text that helps us understand what meekness is. Notice how it's, re- it, it's related to Romans 12.3. In that both texts emphasize in their own way the, why arrogance and selfishness are contrary to the Christian walk. After all, why should any Christian be arrogant about anything? Are we not all sinners? Would we all not be doomed by eternal destruction were it not for Jesus? Are we not all utterly dependent upon God for every breath we breathe, every heart, heartbeat? Does not every gift and talent we have come from God? What then do we have to be proud of? Nothing. Indeed, considering all that it costs to save us, Christians should be the meekest and humblest folk on earth. It's true, isn't it? It's absolutely true. We are all in the same boat. We are all sinners saved by grace. If it wasn't for God's grace, we would all, as somebody said a moment ago, we'd all be Adolf Hitler's. If it wasn't for God's grace. No question about it. So all of our boasting should be about God. And so we take no credit for ourselves. Is it true that God gives us talents, health, wealth, intelligence, and all the resources for which we ever achieve anything all comes from God? Is that true? Mm -hmm. Absolutely true. But is there some aspect in which we still exercise our own individuality in the use of all these resources, either for evil or good? So back to the giving God credit. When Sam was Samson given strength, should Samson give God credit for all the behaviors and actions he used that strength to attain? Praise God, I was able to go and have a relationship with Delilah. He gave me the strength to do it. Is that what he should do? Hmm. So on the evil side of it, we can see that all evil is carried out only because God gives the person the capacity, the energy, the, the life, the very life in which to carry evil out comes from God, doesn't it? Does that mean God's responsible for it? That it's within his will, that he's choosing it for them? Or are they using their free will to abuse all the talents and abilities God has given them? How about the other side of it, the doing good? We actually do something good, something loving, something kind. It would be true to say that this only possible because the Holy Spirit has renewed the heart. Isn't that true? No matter who's doing it, it's because the Holy Spirit has renewed the heart. It's not in their own human nature to do such good things. But as the Holy Spirit renews the heart, is freedom taken away? Do we become puppets and robots? Or as the Holy Spirit renews the heart, we still retain individuality and freedom to exercise God's goodness with our own unique free will. Freer. Freer, he says. The last fruit of the Spirit against self-control and kratia. David wanted to build a temple for God. Asked the prophet. Prophet says, go for it. Prophet comes back. Nathan the next day says, bad idea. Your man of blood can't can't build the temple. Did uh, David's heart attitude towards God change? Did he still love God? He he was going to be obedient. He wasn't going to build a temple. God said, don't do it. Did God say that David should then begin uh, storing up all the resources for the temple to be built? Was that an instruction from the prophet? No. No. Notice what David did. I can't build a temple. Man, oh man, I want to do this. 
can't build the temple. But I still love God. Oh, I can't build it, but I can draw out the plans. I didn't say I couldn't draw the blueprints. Uh, you know what? I can, I can get all the cedars of Lebanon. I can get the gold. I can get the silver. I can start putting all the stuff in. I can get the whole warehouse of stuff together. Now, whose heart did that come from? That came from David's heart. That wasn't a programmed robotic response from God, was it? No. They came from a heart renewed for love. This is individuality, an individual expression of our love to God. And do you think God was smiling in heaven? Sure he was. Think about it as parents. When your kids spontaneously do, you tell them, don't do thus and so, and so they think of other ways to bring you joy, and they, and they do something that, is it, do you, does it bring a smile to your face? Boy, time is just whipping by so fast. Let's just talk real brief about money, meekness, and, and behavior. Um, and let's talk about Jesus very quickly. John 18, 20 to 23, the lesson asks us to look at. And uh, this is where Jesus is before uh, Caiaphas in his trial. And Jesus speaks to Caiaphas. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? And those who heard me, surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, they demanded? Jesus said, if if I said something wrong, testify to what I said. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Was Jesus being meek here? Or was he being argumentative? Sarcastic? Was he mocking? If any of us should ever be called before a council and ask questions about what we teach, how do you think it would be received if when uh, some person asked you, What are you teaching up there in that class? And you would say, I've always taught in the open and in public. Ask those that I teach. Do you think that would be received with um, a positive regard, or would they think you were being a smart aleck? Hmm. Was Christ being a smart aleck? No. Why was it meekness? It absolutely was meekness. Why? He was concerned for others. Exactly. He was concerned for others. You see, he, he did not want to simply look like he was defending himself. He's not up there to defend himself, to promote himself. He wanted to turn all those that were listening's mind to the evidences of the last three and a half years. He wanted them to start thinking, hey, well, what was Christ doing out there for three and a half years? Well, and what was he doing? He was healing. He was feeding. He was resurrecting. He was restoring. He was giving of himself constantly. He was preaching the good news. And what was the impact on the people? He wanted to turn their minds to the evidences of his life. And evidences of his life are more powerful than just verbal testimony, aren't they? Yeah. So God, so Christ was being meek because he was not concerned primarily about protecting himself, but, but reaching those in that, in that audience chamber who potentially could still be reached. Tuesday's lesson. First paragraph, it says, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Hmm. What is the Lord's anger? Giving us up, letting go. Giving us up, letting go, they say. Well, I'm going to take you through some Bible verses because I really want you to see from Scripture. And if you guys want to take a pen out and write these down, you will find this will be a really helpful resource. Or you can just get our notes off the uh, website and they'll all be listed here in the notes. We'll start with Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 22 and 23. Listen to the words. This is the Lord speaking. My anger will flame up like fire and burn anything, everything on earth. It will reach to the world below and consume the roots of the mountains. I will bring on them endless disasters and use all my arrows against them. 
And what do you think that means? That, that sounds pretty intense, doesn't it? Right? Just keep reading the context. A few verses later, verse 29, same chapter. God's still speaking. They fail to see why they were defeated. They cannot understand what happened. Why were a thousand defeated by one and ten thousand by only two? The Lord, their God, had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. Is this, is this a, an interpretation? Is God helping us see what his anger looks like? His anger is letting go and giving up? Well, let's look at some more scripture. Deuteronomy 31 verse 17. When that happens, I will become angry with them. I will abandon them. And they will be destroyed. Why will they be destroyed? Because he abandons them. Many terrible disasters will come upon them. And then they will realize that these things are happening to them because I, their God, am no longer with them. Let's look at Jeremiah 21, 5, 6, 9, 10, and 14, all in the chapter 21. It says, I will fight against you with all my might, my anger, my wrath, and my fury. I will kill everyone living in the city. People and animals alike will die of terrible disease. Anyone who stands in the city will be killed in war or by starvation or disease. It will be given over to the king of Babel, Babylon, and he will burn it to the ground. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will set your palace on fire, and the fire will burn down everything around it. I, the Lord, have spoken. Notice, I'm going to do it. And how am I going to do it? By surrendering you over and no longer protecting you. In the Dark Ages, there was something called the the Black Death. Fifty million people died in Europe of the Black Death. And the priests and leaders of the time said this was due to the wrath of God. God was killing them with this plague. Does anybody know what really caused the Black Death? Bubonic plague was Yersinius pestis is a bacterial infection that is carried by fleas carried on rats. That's why they died. Disease. It says in here they will die by disease. Let's move on to Jeremiah 25, 38 first. It says, The Lord God has abandoned his people like a lion that leaves its cave. The horrors of war and the Lord's fierce anger have turned the country into a desert. What is the Lord's fierce anger? What did he actually do? He abandoned them. This is his fierce anger. Uh, this is out of uh, Jeremiah 34, 7. The Lord, the God of Israel, told me to go and say to King Zedekiah of Judah, I, the Lord, will hand the city over to the king of Babylon and he will burn it down. Again, God's anger is letting go, no longer protecting. Jeremiah 34, 2. Very well then, I will give you freedom. The freedom to die by war, disease, and starvation. Ezekiel 21.31, you will feel my anger when I turn it loose on you like a blazing fire and I will hand you over to brutal men, experts at destruction. Are you seeing a theme here? Over and over, God's anger will burn like a blazing fire and what will he do? I will turn you over. I will let you go. I will abandon you. Here's another one. Hosea 5.14 and 15. I will attack the people of Israel and Judah like a lion. I myself will tear them to pieces and then leave them. When I drag them off, no one will be able to save them. I will abandon my people until they have suffered enough for their sins and come looking for me. Perhaps in their suffering, they will try to find me. What is, what is God's uh, attack on his people here? Letting them go. Abandoning them. Yes? Can you explain how that's love? 
Yes, I sure will. Uh, let, let's give some more evidence, and, I, and I'll explain that to you, okay? Um, and then, then, then we're going to go to Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. God's anger is revealed from heaven against all the sins and the evil of the people whose evil ways pre- prevent the truth from being known. God punishes them, because what can be known about God is plain to them, for God himself made it plain. They say they are wise, but they are fools. Instead of worshiping the immortal God, they worship images to look like mortals or birds or animals or reptiles. And so what does God do? Verse 24, 26, and 28 says the same thing. And so God has given those people over to the filthy things of their heart's desires. Uh, God has given them up. God has let them go. And then, of course, this is out of Desire of Ages, page 754. Speaking about Christ as our substitute on the cross. Then Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As the outer gloom settled upon the Savior, many voices exclaimed, The vengeance of heaven is upon him. The bolts of God's wrath are hurled at him, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Many who believed on him heard this despairing cry. Hope left them. If God had forsaken Jesus, in what could his followers trust? What was the anger and wrath of God upon Jesus? My God, my God, why have you... Forsaken. We see a consistent theme running through scripture here. So the question is, how is that love? Uh, imagine a man and a woman married, and the man comes home one day and his wife says, I'm leaving you for another man. Now the husband loves his wife. How does, when, when the wife now, and of course this is the story of Hosea, when the wife decides to leave, what does the loving husband do? Well, wait, wait. Does he begin to plead to her? Does he give evidences of gifts and and behaviors that say how much I love you? Might he have envoys, intercessors come to plead to his wife? Or might he do all these things? Yes, of course. But if she insists on leaving, what does he do? Does he take her down, chain her to the wall, put a gun to her head and say, Look, you better love me because if you don't, I will kill you. Is that what he does? Is that how love behaves? No, if she insists on leaving him, what's the only loving thing he can do? Abandon her. Let her go. You know, abandon has such a negative connotation. Yeah. To me, abandonment is that that person is leaving. Letting someone go is, I'm staying right here. Yeah, and, I'm letting you And that has to do with English connotation of words. If you look at the behavior, what happened? What did God do? He simply set them free, set them free, set them free, but he never actually gave up on them. He, his heart never changed. He just said, if you insist on leaving, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you go. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you let me go? I will set you free. And then, of course, you read in Hosea, how can I let you go, Ephraim? How can I give you up? I can't. It's tearing my heart up. Or J- Jesus at, at, at Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to take you as a mother hen takes her chicks under the wings. But you wouldn't let me. Yes. In the scriptures you were reading, it kept saying that God will kill, God will destroy, God will drag. And right. It's the reason why that sounds so harsh and angry, just because of the English translation. I was reading that so you could see what those words actually mean. You, this is one of the things when we study Bible that I think sometimes we get confused on. We read the words of God, I will, take, I will send all my arrows against you. <laughs> and we don't actually then say, okay, I believe God said those words. Now what did God actually do? Did you ever see arrows coming out of the sky on Israel? No. What did he actually do? And so we have to connect together both the words that he said and the behaviors that he did to understand the meaning of the words that he said. And so the question would be, why would God speak such harsh words? 
If he wasn't going to actually do it himself, if he was going to allow them to experience this on their own right, uh, why would he speak such harsh words? You've heard me use this analogy before. Let's say you have a child, and he's an unruly child. A difficult, he's 10, 12 years of age, and he's rebellious, he's unruly, he won't listen. Everything you do, you tell him to pick up his room, he backtalks you. You tell him to put away his toys, he just won't do it, he refuses. And everything you do, he's an unruly, rebellious child. You're out this weekend, or some weekend with your family, at uh, Cloudian Canyon, and he meets some other kids, and they're playing Frisbee. And you see your kid chasing the Frisbee, heading straight for the cliff. You're 150 yards, 100, 150 yards away. What do you do? You yell, stop! But you have an unruly child. You have a child who doesn't listen to your instructions. You have a child who thinks, my parents never want me to have any fun. And so he keeps running. What do you do? Do you abandon them yet, or do you do something before you abandon them? What? What? Well, no, listen, this is very, this is very critical. Do, is, is your heart against your child? No. Is your heart wanting to save that child? Yes. So, if you know this child's heart is unruly and rebellious, might you shout, if you don't stop, I'm going to beat your bottom raw. <laughs> might you do that before you just let them go over the cliff? Yeah. Now, if they don't stop, if they don't stop anyway, and they still go over the cliff, on their way down before they hit the ground, do you need to pull out a rifle and shoot them to make them pay just penalties for their disobedience before they hit the ground? <laughs> this is commonly taught in Christianity. If you disobey God and you break His rules, He has to use His power to inflict something upon you to make just penalties be paid. If your child goes over the cliff, falls 150 feet and crashes and smashes themselves in the rocks below, do you then climb down or take off your belt and begin to beat them? I mean, you said you were going to do it. Do you do it? Not then. If your child actually stops after the threat, do you then go over and beat them? <laughs> do you understand in none of the circumstances you actually beat them? Why were you speaking that way? What was happening in these people over and over again? Does God love us enough that before... Remember, if you read the context of Romans, it says they were making images to look like reptiles and birds to worship. What happens to the mind when you do that? You become like it. It damages. It's destructive. Before God lets us go to total self-destruction, will he plead with us? Sure. Will he even give threats to try and turn us back? Yes. But if we don't turn back, what happens? Ultimately, as we read in the earlier statements in class... We see our own consciences. We warp our characters. We become so out of harmony with Him. No amount of love or light has any impact on us. The only thing He can do is let go. Is that loving? Is it loving for, for us to, to threaten the child in that circumstance? Yeah. Or to be more loving to say, Oh, I wouldn't want people to think I was a bad parent. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to raise my voice. Is that more loving? So you shout and you say, If you don't stop, I'm going to beat your bottom roll and across the canyon, hikers on the other side hear you and go, man, what a cruel parent. I'd never treat my child like that. Has God been misunderstood in the way he's treated us through history? Yes. And people study the scriptures and they take these loud statements just like you. If you don't stop and beat your bottom roll, they record that. They go play it. This is an abusive parent. This parent doesn't love his kids. If you don't do what this parent says, this parent will inflict penalties upon you to make you pay. Would that be an accurate representation of you? No. Not at all. This is what happens with many people when they read the scripture. They hear his words, but they don't connect it to what he actually did. And all those texts I just went through, 
Every one of them. I connected his words with what he actually did. And what did he do? He let them go. He set them free. Wow, isn't that cool? And that's how we, that's how we bring the pieces together. And what's the central theme that all Scripture must tie to? The character of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And so if you're getting some idea that God is angry, he's, he's, he's a hurtful being, he'll, he'll, he'll use his power to inflict upon you external torture that you would not otherwise experience because of your own free choices, then something's wrong with that. Something's wrong with that. Will the kid who goes over the cliff in rebellion, if they don't die upon impact, will that kid suffer? Yes. At your hand? No. No, there is suffering in sin. And God will send the parents will still be trying to heal them. And exactly. And the parent will still be trying to heal. And in fact, isn't it true, if, the, if your kid went over that cliff in rebellion, in disobedience, even when you're doing everything and they just are an unruly, rebellious child and they hit those rocks below, but they don't die. They break their bones, their pelvis, their spine. They're down there bleeding. They're in pain. Isn't it true you will bring every resource you can bring to save them? Yes. That's God. That's mankind. That's us in sin. Yes. Uh, one thing that tells me how loving and patient God is is if everything was uh, finished on the cross and, and our salvation was determined then on that day or whatever, God's given us another 2,000 years since then. He's very patient. I mean, he didn't have to wait another 2,000 years. But it sounds to me like he's pretty loving and patient. This is such an important thing I wanted to share it with you. It's uh, how do we know that God will not use these threatening and coercive tactics other than to to save us, but but in the end, he doesn't actually do those things. It's just to get us to turn back. And if the child, of course, turns back, they realize, Mommy, Daddy's safe. They're, they're not going to hurt me. I want you to, to listen to this out of Review and Herald, September 7, 1897. Satan's representations against the government of God and his defense of those who sided with him were a constant accusation against God. His murmurings and complaints were groundless, and yet God allowed him to work out his theory. God could have destroyed Satan and all his sympathizers as easily as one casts a pebble to the ground. But by doing so, he would have given a precedent for the exercise of force. All compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. He would not work on this line. He would not give the slightest encouragement for any human being to set himself up as God over another human being, feeling at liberty to cause him physical or mental suffering. This principle is wholly of Satan's creation. The principles of God's character were the foundation of education constantly kept before heavenly angels. These principles were goodness, mercy, and love. Self-evidencing light was to be recognized and freely accepted by all who occupied positions of trust and power. They must accept God's principles and through the presentation of truth and righteousness convince all who were in his service. This was the only power to be used. Force must never come in. All who thought that their position gave them power to command their fellow beings and control conscience must be deprived of their position, for this is not God's plan. These principles are to be the foundation of education in God's church today. The rules given by him are to be observed and respected. God has enjoined this. His government is moral. Nothing is to be done by compulsion. Truth is to be the prevailing power. All services to be done willingly and for the love of God. All who are honored with position of influence are to represent God. For when officiating, they are in the place of God. In everything, their actions must correspond with the importance of their position. The higher the position, the more distinctly will self-sacrifice be revealed if they are fit for office. 
Every heart that is controlled by these principles will be loyal. But when those who profess to be in God's service resort to accusation, they are adopting Satan's principles to cast out Satan. Today, Satan is working upon human minds by his crooked principles. These will be adopted and acted upon by some who claim to be loyal and true to God's government. How shall we know that they are disloyal and untrue? By their fruits ye shall know them. God does not force anyone. He leaves all free to choose. Is that powerful or what? Watch the methods used. Beast power and revelation will use the methods of coercion. No one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. In our church today, the prevailing power is truth presented in love, leaving people free. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that even though you are all-powerful, you want the service of love, and love cannot be coerced nor commanded, but won freely. And Lord, you have done it. You have gone to the nth degree. You have humbled yourself. You have partaken of our nature. You have suffered. You have shown us that with all power, you will never use that power to protect yourself, but will sacrifice power to save us. Amazing, Lord. We humble ourselves before you. We ask that that we might love you and others as you have loved us, and that we might practice your methods here in, in this church of presenting truth in love and leaving others free. We pray in your holy name. Amen.